You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. Uh, we are in the Michaelmas section, which is the last section of the book. It is the 24th lecture in this series, and lecture 3, and this is called A Micaiah Lecture, given in Dornach on the 13th of January, 1924. The Michael Period which the world entered already in the last third of the 19th century, and into which human beings will have to enter with ever-increasing consciousness, is very different from former Michael epochs. Each of the seven great archangel spirits exert their separate influence in different epochs on the earthly evolution of mankind. Thus, after given periods of time, the guidance of Gabriel, Uriel, Raphael, or Michael is repeated. Our own period is, however, essentially different from the earlier Michael period. This is because the human being stands in quite another relation to the spiritual world since the first third of the 15th century than he ever did before. This new connection to the spiritual world also determines the very particular kind of relationship we have with the spirit now guiding the destiny of mankind whom we may call by the ancient name of Michael. Recently I have been speaking to you again of the Rosicrucian movement. Rosicrucianism, I remarked, has indeed led to charlatanry in many quarters. Most of the so-called Rosicrucianism that has been transmitted to mankind is charlatanry. Nevertheless, as I have explained on former occasions, there did exist an individuality whom we may describe by the name of Christian Rosenkreutz, who revealed the way in which an enlightened spirit, a man of spiritual knowledge, could enter into connection with the spiritual world at the dawn of this new phase of humanity. It was in a sense granted to Christian Rosenkreutz to put the most varied and deep questions to existence, to seek answers to the riddles of life in a quite new and different way from earlier times. And while Rosicrucianism was arising, directing the mind of man with what would later be called Faustian striving toward the spiritual world, an abstract naturalistic science was also making its appearance. The bearers of this modern stream of intellectual life, men like Galileo, Giordano Bruno, Copernicus or Kepler, worthy as they are of fullest recognition, had a quite different attitude to the world from the Rosicrucians, who wanted to foster not a merely formal or abstract, but a true knowledge of things. The Rosicrucians perceived in their own human life and being that times had changed, and therefore also the whole relation of the gods to mankind. Until the 4th century A.D., and in a rudimentary way even until the 12th and 13th centuries, human beings were able to draw forth from themselves real knowledge about the spiritual world. 
by practicing the exercises which belong to the old mysteries, they could draw forth from themselves the secrets of existence. For the humanity of olden times it really was so. The initiates drew forth what they had to say to mankind from the depths of their souls, brought it to the surface of their thought, to their world of ideas. They were aware that they were drawing forth their knowledge from the inner depths of the human soul. The exercises they underwent were intended, indeed, to stir the human heart to its depths, to inform the human heart and mind with experiences which do not occur in ordinary life. Thereby the secrets of the world of the gods were, so to speak, drawn forth from the inner being of man. The unaided human being, however, cannot draw secrets out of himself and also perceive them. True in the old instinctive clairvoyance, people did behold the secrets of the world. They saw them in imagination. They heard and perceived them in inspiration. They united themselves with them in intuition. These things, however, are impossible so long as one merely stands there alone just as little as it is possible for me to draw a triangle without a board. The triangle I draw on the board portrays to me what I bear in a purely spiritual way within me. The triangle as a whole, all the laws of the triangle, are in me. But when I draw the triangle on the board, I bring home to myself what is really there within me. So it is when we make external diagrams. But, when it is a question of drawing real knowledge out of the human being in the manner of the ancient mysteries, this knowledge too must in a certain sense be written somewhere. To be perceived, such knowledge must be inscribed in what has been called from time immemorial the astral light, in quotes, the fine substantiality of the akasha. Everything must be written there one must be able to develop this faculty of writing in the astral light. This faculty has depended on many and varied things in the course of human evolution. Let us, for the moment, leave the very ancient times on one side. During the first post-Atlantean epoch, the ancient Indian, things were somewhat different. I will begin, rather, with the ancient Persian epoch, as described in my title, Occult Science and Outline, Readers Aside, also known as An Outline of Esoteric Science, and Readers Aside. At that period, there was an instinctive clairvoyance and knowledge of the divine spiritual world. This knowledge could be written in the astral light so that the human being could also behold it, because the earth, the solid earth, afforded resistance. The writing itself is done, of course, with the spiritual organs, but these organs also require something to offer them resistance. The things that are thus seen in the spirit are naturally not inscribed on the earth itself. They are written in the astral light. But the earth acts as a ground of resistance. Because the seers of the ancient Persian epoch could feel the resistance of the earth, the perceptions they drew forth from their inner being grew into actual visions. In the next, the Egypto-Chaldean epoch, all the knowledge that the initiates drew forth from their souls could be written in the astral light by virtue of the fluid element. Try to form a clear picture of this process. 
the initiate of the ancient Persian epoch, looked to the solid earth. Wherever there were plants or stones, the astrolite reflected back to him his inner vision. The initiate of the Egypto-Chaldean epoch looked into the sea, into the river, or into the falling rain, the rising mist. When he looked into the river or the sea, he saw the enduring secrets. Those secrets, on the other hand, which relate to the transient, to the workings of the gods in transient things, he beheld in the downpouring rain or the ascending mist. You must fully imbue yourselves with the idea that the ancients did not have our prosaic and mundane view of mist and rain. These said much to them, revealed to them the secrets of the gods. Then in the Greco-Latin period, visions were there like a feta morgana in the air. The Greek saw his Zeus, his gods, in the astral light, but he had the feeling that it only reflected the gods to him under the proper conditions. Hence he assigned his gods to special places, places where the air could offer the proper resistance for making inscriptions in the astral light. And so it remained until the 4th century A.D. Even among the first fathers of the Christian Church, and notably the old Greek fathers, there were many, as you may even prove from their writings, who saw this feta morgana of their own spiritual visions in the astral light through the air's resistance. Thus they had clear knowledge of the fact that the Logos, the divine word, arose out of man, and revealed himself through nature. But in the course of time this knowledge faded and grew feeble. Echoes of it still continued in a few specially gifted persons until the 12th or 13th century. But when the age of abstract knowledge came, when people came to rely only on logical sequences of ideas and the results of sense observation, then neither earth nor water nor air afforded resistance but only the element of the warmth ether. It is unknown, of course, to those who are completely wrapped up in their abstract thoughts, that these abstract thoughts are also written in the astral light. They are written there indeed. But in this process, the element of the warmth ether provides the soul resistance. Now remember once more that in the ancient Persian epoch, the solid earth, provided the resistance for people to behold what was written in the astral light. What is contained there, all that for which the solid earth is the resistance, rays on and out, but only as far as the sphere of the moon. Farther it cannot go. From there it rays back again. Therefore it remains, so to speak, with the earth. We behold the secrets reflected by the earth, which remain because the lunar sphere presses them back. Now, let us consider the Egypto-Chaldean epoch, during which the waters of the earth reflected secrets back to mankind. What is thus reflected goes as far as the Saturn sphere, which again presses upon it, sending it back. This allows the human being upon earth to retain his visions. And if we go on into the Greco-Latin period, even into the 12th or 13th centuries, we find the visions inscribed in astral light by means of the air. What is reflected in this way 
goes to the farthest reaches of the cosmic sphere before it returns. It is the most fleeting of all. Yet by means of it, the human being still remains united with his visions. The initiates of all these epochs could continually say to themselves, quote, such spiritual vision as we have had through earth or water or air is truly there. Close quote. But when our modern times arrived, only the element of the warmth ether could offer resistance. And the element of the warmth ether carries all that is written in it out into the depths of the universe, right out of the realm of space into the spiritual worlds. It is no longer there. It is so indeed. Take the most pedantic of modern professors with his ideas, parenthesis. He must at least have ideas. You would first have to make sure of it in each individual case, for modern professors seldom have ideas. Close parenthesis. But if he has ideas, then they are inscribed through the warmth ether into astral light. Now, the warmth ether is transient and fleeting. All things become merged and fused in it at once and go out into cosmic distances. Such an individual as Christian Rosenkreutz knew that the initiates of olden times had lived with their visions, knew that they had strengthened their vision through the knowledge that it was reflected somewhere in the heavens, whether in the moon sphere, the planetary sphere, or at the end of the cosmos. But now nothing at all was reflected. For immediate wide-awake vision nothing at all was reflected. Now people could come up with ideas about nature. The Copernican cosmology could arise. All manner of ideas could be formed, but they were scattered in the warmth ether, out into the depths of the universe. So then it came about that Christian Rosenkreutz, through inspiration by a higher spirit, found a way to perceive the reflected radiation after all, in spite of the fact that it was only the warmth ether's reflection. To make this possible, other conditions of consciousness, dim, subconscious, and sleep-like, were called into play, conditions in which the human being is normally outside his body. Then it could be perceived that modern abstract ideas are inscribed, not, it is true, in the realm of space, but in the spiritual world. This, therefore, was the remarkable outcome for the Rosicrucian movement. As though, standing between two worlds, they made themselves acquainted with all that could be discovered about nature in this epoch. They received it into themselves and assimilated it as only a human being can. They enhanced into true wisdom what for the others was only science. Holding it in their souls, they tried to pass over into sleep in highest purity and after intimate meditations. Then the divine spiritual worlds no longer the far reaches of the spatial universe, but the divine spiritual worlds, brought back to them in a spiritually real language what had been conceived at first in abstract ideas. The Copernican cosmology was taught in Rosicrucian schools, but its ideas also came back in special states of consciousness, in the form I explained here during the last few days.
It was the Rosicrucians, above all, who realized that what one receives in the modern form of knowledge must first, so to speak, be offered to the gods, so that they may translate it into their language and give it once more to human beings. Such a process is still possible. It is so indeed, my dear friends. You may take up the initiation principle of Rosicrucianism and study the system of Hackel with all its materialism. Study it, and at the same time permeate yourselves with the methods of cognition indicated in title Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, How Is It Achieved? Take what you learn in Hackel's title Anthropogenesis on the Ancestors of Man. In that form it may very likely repel you. Learn it nevertheless. Learn all that can be learned about it by outer natural science and carry it up to the gods. Then you will receive what is related about evolution in my title Occult Science. Such is the connection between the feeble, shadowy knowledge which we can acquire here with our physical body and what the gods can give us by means of this knowledge, if we make the right preparations in the right spirit. We must first bring to the gods what we can learn here on the earth, for in truth the times have changed. Something else has also happened. However hard a person may strive nowadays, he can no longer draw anything forth from himself as the old initiates did. The soul no longer reveals things in the way it did for the old initiates. Instead, its revelations are mixed with impurities and overshadowed by instincts, as is evident in the case of spiritualist mediums and also in morbid or pathological conditions. All that arises merely from within becomes impure. The time of finding revelations only from within is past. It was past already in the 12th or 13th century. What happened can be expressed approximately as follows. The initiates of the older Persian epoch wrote a great deal into the astral light with the help of the resistance of the earth. When the first initiate of the old Persian epoch appeared, the whole of the astral light destined for man was like an unwritten slate. I shall speak later of the old Indian epoch. Today I shall only go back to ancient Persian times. In those days all nature, all the elements, earth, water, air, and warmth, were an unwritten slate. Now the initiates of the old Persian epoch wrote on this slate as much as could be written by virtue of the resistance of the earth. There, to begin with, the secrets destined to come to man from the gods were written. To a certain degree the slate of astral light was inscribed, Yet, judged by another standard, it was empty, so the initiates of the Egypto-Chaldean epoch were able to continue the writing in their way, for they gained their visions by the resistance of water. Another part of the slate became inscribed. Then came the Greek initiates. They inscribed the third portion of the slate, so that it is now filled. The slate available through the resistance of the realms of nature was fully inscribed by the 13th or 14th century. Then human beings began to write in the warmth ether. That, however, scatters and dissolves. For a while, until the 19th century, people wrote in the warmth ether. 
They had no inkling that their experiences also stood written in the astral light. But now the time has come when human beings must see that they can no longer draw the secrets of the world out of themselves. Only by preparing themselves in heart and mind so that they can read what is written on the astral light's full slate can they gain access to these secrets. This is what we must now prepare to make ourselves ripe for. No longer to draw revelations out of ourselves like the old initiates, but to be able to read in the astral light all that is written there. If we do so, precisely what we gain through the warmth ether will work as an inspiration. The gods come to meet us and bring to us the reality of what we have acquired by our own efforts here on earth. And what we thus receive through the warmth ether reacts in turn on all that stands written into the astral light by virtue of the air, water, and earth. Thus the natural science of today is actually the true basis for spiritual seership. Learn first by natural science to know the properties of air, water, and earth. Attain the corresponding inner faculties. Then as you gaze into the airy, into the watery, into the earthy element, the astral light will stream forth. It does not stream forth like a vague mist or cloud, but so that we can read in it the secrets of world existence and of human life. What, then, do we read? We, the humanity of today, read what we ourselves have written. For what does it mean to say that the ancient Greeks, Egyptians, Chaldeans, Persians wrote in the astralite? It was we ourselves who wrote it in our former lives on earth. You see, my dear friends, just as our inner memory of the common things that we experience in earthly life preserves them for us, so to the astralite, which spreads itself around us, preserves for us the secrets we have written in it. There we must read if we wish to find the secrets once more. It is a kind of evolution memory which must arise in mankind. A consciousness must gradually arise that there is such an evolution memory and that the humanity of today must read its own former cultural epochs in the astral light, just as we in advanced age read our own youth by means of ordinary memory. This must enter human consciousness. I have held the lectures this Christmas time in a way intended to show you how necessary it is to draw forth from the astral light the secrets that we need today. The old initiation was focused mainly on subjective life. The new initiation concentrates on objectivity. That is the great difference. All the secrets with which the gods endowed the subjectivity of the human being are written into the outer world. What they implanted in his sentient body came out during the old Persian epoch. What they implanted in his sentient soul came out in the Egypto-Chaldean epoch. What they implanted in his intellectual or mind-soul came out during the Grecian epoch. But the spiritual soul which we are now to evolve is independent, brings forth nothing more out of itself. 
Instead, it develops a relationship with what is already there. As human beings, we must find our humanity again in the astral light. The peculiarity of the Rosicrucian movement is that in a time of transition it had to limit itself to entering into certain dreamlike conditions, to dream, as it were, the higher truth of what science discovers here in nature in a calculated and sober way. But since the beginning of the Michael Epoch, since the end of the 1870s, what was thus attained in the time of the old Rosicrucians can now be attained in a conscious way. Today, therefore, we no longer need that other condition which was half-conscious. What we need instead is a state of enhanced consciousness. Then, with the knowledge of nature which we acquire, we can enter into the higher world. And this knowledge descends toward us. We read again what has been written in the astral light. And as we do so, it emerges and descends to meet us in spiritual reality. And when we carry up into a spiritual world the knowledge of nature attained here, or the creations of naturalistic art, or the religious sentiments working naturalistically in the soul, even religion has become naturalistic nowadays, then if we develop the necessary faculties, we actually encounter Michael. So we may say that the old Rosicrucian movement is characterized by the fact that its most illumined spirits had an intense longing to meet Michael. But they could only do so in the realms of dream. Since the end of the last third of the 19th century, however, human beings can meet Michael in the spirit in a fully conscious way. But Michael is a being who reveals nothing if we do not bring him something from our diligent spiritual work on earth. Michael is a silent spirit, silent and taciturn. Other ruling archangels are talkative spirits, in a spiritual sense, of course, but Michael is taciturn. He is a spirit who speaks very little. At most he will give sparing indications, for he does not communicate with us so much through the word as, if I may so express it, through his gaze, the power and direction of his gaze. This is because Michael concerns himself most of all with what human beings create out of the Spirit. He lives with the consequences of all that humanity creates. The other spirits live more with the causes, whereas Michael lives more with the consequences. The other spirits kindle in man the impulses for what he should do. Michael will be the true spiritual hero of freedom. He leaves human beings free to act, then takes the results of their deeds and carries them on and out into the cosmos, to continue in the cosmos what human beings themselves cannot yet achieve. We can have the feeling about other beings of the hierarchy of the Archangeloi that they give us the impulses to do this or that. In a greater or lesser degree, such impulses come from them. Michael, on the other hand, is the spirit from whom no impulses come to begin with. For his characteristic period of rulership 
which is now coming, is one in which things occur out of human freedom. But when a person does something out of spiritual activity or inner freedom, consciously or unconsciously kindled by reading the astral light, then Michael carries the human earthly deed out into the cosmos so that it becomes cosmic deed. Michael cares for the results. The other spirits care more for the causes. However, Michael is not only a silent, taciturn spirit. He meets us with a very clear gesture of rejection for many things which the human being of today still holds firmly to. For example, all knowledge about human, animal, or plant life which lays stress on inherited characteristics, on all that is inherited in physical nature, is, we feel, repelled and rejected by Michael. He means to show by this that such knowledge is no help to us in the spiritual world. Only what we discover in the human, animal, and plant kingdoms that is independent of purely hereditary nature can be lifted toward Michael. Then we receive not the eloquent gesture of deprecation, but the look of agreement, which tells us that it is a fitting thought, one acceptable to cosmic guidance. For this is what we learn increasingly to strive for, to meditate in such a way as to strike through to the astral light and see the secrets of existence, and then to come before Michael and receive his approving look, which tells us, quote, that is just, that is right, before the cosmic guidance. Close quote. Michael also sternly rejects all separating elements, such as the human languages. So long as we only clothe our knowledge in the outer forms of language, rather than lifting it right up into the realm of thought, we cannot come near Michael. In the spiritual world, Today, therefore, a most significant battle is taking place. For on the one hand, the Michael impulse has entered the evolution of humanity. The Michael impulse is there. But there is still, on the other hand, much in the evolution of humanity that will not receive this impulse of Michael, that wants to reject it. Nationalistic feelings, for example which flared up in the 19th century and became strong in the 20th, stronger and stronger. By the principle of nationalism, many things have been ordered, or rather disordered, in the most recent times. Disordered is truly the right word. All this is in terrible opposition to the Michael principle. All this contains aramonic forces which strive against the influence and impulse of Michael forces upon the earthly life of man. One can see this battle, the harmonic spirits storming upward, trying to carry upward what results from the impulses of inherited nationality, which Michael sternly rejects and repels. A fierce spiritual conflict is truly taking place in our time, for a large proportion of mankind only thinks in words, not in real thoughts. And to think only in words is no way to Michael. We only come to Michael when we get through the words to real inner experiences of the Spirit, when we do not hang on the words but arrive at real inner experiences of the Spirit. 
This is the very essence, the secret of modern initiation. To get beyond the words to a living experience of the spiritual. It is not contrary to a feeling for the beauty of language. Precisely when we no longer think in language, we begin to feel it. We begin to have it streaming in us and out from us as an element of feeling. That, however, is a thing which people of today must still strive for. Perhaps, to begin with, they cannot attain it in speech, but through handwriting. For it must be said that people today do not own writing. It owns them. What does this mean? It means that in our wrist, in our hand, we have a certain way of writing. We write mechanically, compelled by the hand. This is a thing that fetters us. We only become unfettered when we write as we paint or draw, when every letter beside the next becomes something drawn. Then there is no longer what is ordinarily called a handwriting. Instead, we draw the form of the letter. Our relation to the letter is then objective. We observe its form. For this reason, strange as it may sound, in certain Rosicrucian schools, learning to write was prohibited until the fourteenth or fifteenth year of age, so that the form, the mechanism which comes to expression in writing, did not enter the human organism. Pupils were only introduced to the form of letters once their faculty of observation had developed. Then, at the same time as learning the conventional letters needed for human communication, they had to learn others, specifically Rosicrucian letters, which are regarded nowadays as a secret script. They were not intended as such. The idea was that for an A, one should learn at the same time another sign, and there's a circle with a dot in the center, so that one did not hold fast to one sign only. Then one could free oneself from signs altogether and feel the real A as something higher than its mere sign. Otherwise, the mere letter A would be too closely identified with the living, floating, weaving A in German A that sounds forth from us. Much of Rosicrucianism found its way into general culture. One of its fundamental principles was that from the small circles in which they were united, the Rosicrucians went out into the world generally working as doctors. But alongside their medical practice, they spread knowledge of many things in the wide circles into which they came. Moreover, with such knowledge, certain beliefs and feelings were spread. We find them wherever the Rosicrucian stream has left its traces. Sometimes they even assume grotesque forms. One such feeling regarded our modern forms of writing, and printing even more so, as a black art. In actual fact, nothing hinders us more from reading in the astral light than ordinary writing. This artificial and fixed way of rendering experience is a great hindrance to reading in the astral light. One must always first overcome the obstacle of ordinary writing when one wants to read in the astral light. This leads me back to something else which I mentioned some while ago. In the formation of spiritual knowledge, one must always be present with full inner activity. I confessed that I have many notebooks in which I write or draw the results I come to. I generally do not look at them again. 
yet by calling into activity not only the head but the whole human being, knowledge and perceptions come forth which take hold of one. Whoever adopts this process gradually accustoms himself not to care so much for what he sees physically, that is already fixed, but to remain in the activity in order not to spoil his faculty of seeing in the astral light. It is good, therefore, when one fixes things in ordinary writing to hold back from close identification with the script itself, either by, in quotes, drawing the letters in an artistic way as though painting them, or by not looking back at what one has written. Only then can one acquire the faculty of preserving for oneself the impressions of the astral light. If we are obliged to relate ourselves to writing in the modern way, we mar our spiritual progress. For this reason, great care is taken in our Waldorf School educational method to protect the human being from such an extreme exposure to writing as is current in the ordinary educational methods of today. Care is taken that he should continue to inhabit the spiritual realm, for that is necessary. The world must once more come to adopt the initiation principle and integrate it with the other principles of civilization. Only then will the human being on earth be able to gather in his soul something with which he can go before Michael, so as to meet with Michael's approving gaze, which says, quote, that is just before the universe, close quote. Then the will is strengthened and made firm, and the human being is incorporated in the spiritual progress of the world. Then man himself works in harmony with the impulses which Michael will instill into human and earthly evolution in the Michael epoch now beginning. Many, many things must be taken into account if the human being is to cross in the right way over the abyss of which I spoke yesterday, where a guardian stands. Subsequent lectures will show how this abyss opened up in the 1840s and how the human being, influenced by the kinds of knowledge I have spoken of today, can look back upon the abyss and come to terms with its guardian. The end of Lecture 24